Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted materials is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 36 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. We're regrouping after the Thanksgiving break, which, hopefully, was a time of gratefulness to God for being kind, patient, and gracious to us in a time of deepening darkness. It was a moment when we could express our thanks to God for the current abundance of food with which we can enjoy a feast and avoid cooking dinner for at least a couple nights. It was a happy week for people, but maybe not so much for turkeys. But at least, they end up honorably on our dinner table in front of us, rather than dishonorably being thrown into a hole in the ground after being killed by government agents due to the so-called bird flu. And while we're grateful to have had at least one more year of relative abundance, we are also increasingly aware that the forces of darkness are doing their best to make that celebration as rare as possible in the future. Uh, For us not for the forces of darkness. They intend to celebrate just fine. But aside from God and the assurance of our eventual victory through his son Jesus Christ, we may have some human efforts to celebrate in the near future, as three men push back against the growing global darkness that, unfortunately, is the American government. If nothing else, we will at least have something to look forward to other than the Super Bowl. This is breaking news that was just announced on Sarah Westall's podcast called Business Game Changers. Uh, Despite its name, it's not really all about business. This is a legal case where the plaintiff has alleged that over 300 members of Congress should be removed from office for endangering national security and thereby violating their oath of office. Uh, No chance, you might think. Well, it's on its way to the Supreme Court for a hearing on, get this, January 6th, that just happens to be the day of the week they do these things, and the Supreme Court is in a hurry to hear this case. I'm going to play just enough of Sarah's podcast for us to understand what's at stake, but if you'd like to hear the whole story of how this case got to the Supreme Court, go to sarahwestall.com, that's Sarah with an H, and Westall with no H, and it is the Brunson case, which is currently the lead story. You can also access it at 7discoveries.com. That's the actual website of the case that's been filed if you want to go and actually read the case. They would appreciate a donation of like a dollar or something like that. If nothing else, it lets them know that you're on their side. Now, the lead litigant in this case is Loy Brunson. Let's let Sarah introduce him to hear what the case is about. Hi, Loy. Thank you so much for joining the program. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here with you. You have an incredible court case coming up with the Supreme Court. And I got to ask you some questions. It is groundbreaking, as you know. And you talk about, I mean, the lawsuit is against 385 members of Congress, VP Pence, Harris, Biden, and President Biden. Can you talk about what the case is about? Okay, the case, first of all, I'd like to say what it's not about. It's not about the election results of 2020. It's not about uh, Republicans or Democrats. It's about securing 
our national, it's about protecting our national security. It's about, it's about 100 members of Congress presented evidence and testimony that we simply needed to take, they simply needed to take 10 days to investigate the claims of crimes and security breach uh, before, they, before they accepted the elector votes. So when Senator Lee and others stood there and held the Constitution and said, we've got to just move forward with this, they didn't understand that, no, they move forward after they settled the dust, after they settled the claims and make sure that they can move forward in a sound, honest, constitutional way. So they should have paused for 10 days. They were required to pause for 10 days and investigate, and they chose not to. So every single member of Congress that voted against a simple 10-day investigation is is a defendant, as well as uh, Joe Biden and Mike Pence. So it is a very simple question. Did they violate the law and thereby threaten national security by not doing what they are constitutionally required to do? You won't be surprised to hear that the lower courts all ruled against Mr. Brunson and his brothers. They expected that and actually started two lawsuits in parallel to speed the process to the Supreme Court. This is the one that made it through the process the fastest. He talks about the strategy they used to get this case in front of the Supreme Court, which I'll skip over, but you can go listen to at sarahwestall.com. It's very interesting and worth your time if you have you know, the time to listen to it. These men are not attorneys, but they're doing more to address this disintegrating governmental system than any attorney I know. Sarah's interview can be found on lots of podcast platforms, at least the ones that haven't deplatformed her. So go find one of them if you want to hear more details while you're driving to work. So uh, I get stuck in federal court, but my brother Rollin, his case doesn't get stuck. He started in state court, moved to federal court, and then went to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. But there he did get stuck. And so for three or four months, it was stuck there. We started to get frustrated thinking, oh, we're dead in the water. We're not going to be able to get to the Supreme Court because you can't go to the Supreme Court unless you get it adjudicated, get every the decisions from the lower courts, right? So, yeah. so after a while sitting on it, we got frustrated and we put a little pressure on Darren, the legal guy, said, you've got to find a way to get to the Supreme Court. This is never going to work this way. So. So he called me a few days later and says, oh, my gosh, I found it. I found that there's a Supreme Court Rule 11 that if they allow it, we can actually petition this. We can send this petition in as a national emergency. And because it's a national emergency under Rule 11, we don't need to wait for the circuit court. We don't need to wait for the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals to make a decision. So we, we sent that to the Supreme Court. And about five days later, we, we got a phone call from the clerk's office. So we get a call from them and we're thinking, okay, are they going to accept this without the decision from the 10th Circuit? That means that if they accept the Rule 11, and we had to actually print Rule 11 on the cover of the petition, identifying it as a Rule 11 case petition. So my brother you know, picks up the phone and it's a, it's an, a case analyst from the clerk's office. And she said, we've decided to accept your case. Five days and they get a phone call from the Supreme Court. Do you think someone there wants to hear the case? Under Rule 11, they can go far beyond just the petition. They can actually get right into the complaint and completely decide the outcome of the complaint. So this kind of action at the Supreme Court is very special and very, very rare. It is hardly ever used and only in cases where there's a serious constitutional threat to the country, which shows how seriously the Supreme Court views this case. As it turns out, that tactic wasn't needed, And you can hear about that and why it happened in the podcast. 
but we'll just pick it up from from there. And this, the analyst said, how soon can we get this petition? And my brother says, well, probably a couple of weeks. And she said, are you sure you can't get it to us sooner than that? And he says, well, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> we'll try Did you to get, get it, it sooner. You got it sooner? Too? Yeah, instead of two weeks, we got it to them a week early. So on October 30th, we overnight mailed it, overnight mailed it. And they got it on Friday, which was uh, the 21st. And they docketed it on Monday and showed that it was filed the day we mailed it, which was the 20th. So they received it on the 24th and docketed it as filed on the 20th. What does it mean to docket it? Does that mean it's on their schedule? They, yeah, they put it on the docket where you can actually see it with a petition number, a docket number, and it's right there displayed for the public to see. So now it's now it's right on the docket where the, everyone in the world can see it's there. So it is now an officially filed and docketed case with the Supreme Court. Okay, okay. so when do you think they will hear it? When will it go forward? Okay, well, we have a breakthrough. This is, you're the first interview to hear this information. Excellent. We received about an hour or so ago. So the U.S. attorneys were notified that they had about 30 days. They had until the 23rd of November to oppose this petition. It's called file an opposition. So they had till the 23rd of November to file a, a, an opposition to try to convince the court that when it goes in the conference that they should toss it or maybe sure. even toss the court, whatever. So, okay, so we're counting the days. And the day before Thanksgiving is the day as the deadline. The twenty third is is Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, and nothing had happened. So we're thinking the U.S. attorneys are usually a little quicker than this, but they hadn't responded at all. So my brother had actually been sent documents from the Supreme Court, which included a waiver, and he was instructed to send that to the U.S. attorneys to give them an opportunity to waive their right to oppose this petition so that we can move forward you know, quicker because then there would be no deadline and then they could schedule conference quicker. But they didn't do that. They just dragged it out, didn't respond at all until the 23rd, we get a notice that the U.S. attorneys are no longer, no longer on the case and they have been replaced by the United States Solicitor General. I think her name is Elizabeth Prelogger. Okay, well, what and does so, that mean? I'm going to keep asking questions because we're going to have, I have, okay. you know, that means, we got, that, means, go ahead. that means that the 380 defendants are no longer represented by the U.S. attorneys. Their defense attorneys are no longer their defense attorneys. And instead, their defense attorney is the solicitor general. Okay, so she's now representing the 380 defendants. And so she comes on record as the new counsel representing the 380 respondents. She is now their defense attorney, just one person. And she also signs the waiver the day it was the day that the opposition was due. She signs a waiver waiving their right to oppose the petition before it goes to conference. She signs a waiver stating that they they waive their right to oppose this petition before it goes to conference. Okay. Wow. So that means that it, they, it will go, if they decide they want to bring it to conference, it's going. Well, guess what? Guess what we saw on the docket today? It's going to conference? It's been distributed to the justices for conference scheduled January 6, 2023. If that isn't the hand of God working to give righteous people some hope on Thanksgiving, I don't know what is. Righteous Christians have been peacefully standing up and fighting this evil administration and government ever since the 2020 election was clearly stolen by the deep state apparatus. Even the January 6th protest was peaceful. The only unpeaceful acts on January 6th 
were those committed by deep state operatives who were planted in the crowd and on the Capitol steps to incite a riot and give a pretext of insurrection for Nancy Pelosi and the rest of her henchmen and henchwomen to massacre the Constitution and bring in the lawless regime of Biden and those who would destroy what remains of America. The technical term for, term for hearing is when both the attorneys representing both sides get in there and they argue it in front of the justices, right? Yeah. Okay. That, that, they should call that a trial, okay? Because the conference, the conference scheduled for January 6th for this case, all nine justices appear at the conference. They go into the conference. They've studied the case since right now till January 6th. They've studied the petition, I'll call it. And so they take a vote. No one else is in there. Attorneys for either side are not there. No litigants. Just the justices are in there in conference. They talk about it. They discuss it. And they take a vote. And so they vote on whether it moves forward to a full-blown trial. I'll call it a trial. Okay? But okay. attorneys would call it a hearing. That would be the big hearing. Right? And so if four of the nine justices vote in conference to move this forward, then there will be a full trial where, you know, hearing in front of the justices where they decide on, on whether or not to grant the reliefs and do everything that the complaint asks the court to do. So January 6th is the date when they will vote on whether to proceed with a full hearing, but they only need four yes votes. That's a day when we'll find out who on the Supreme Court is for America and who is for the globalists who is a patriot, and who wants to sell out America to foreign powers. It's kind of that simple. Patriots would want to hear the full evidence of constitutional wrongdoing. Sellouts will want to bury it. Wow. Okay. So we're going to talk about what the, the complaint asked the court to do. But if they just say they don't want to hear it, the politics all gets involved and whatever, then it just goes away. Is that correct? Yeah, if they decide in conference that they don't want to take it to trial, we'll call it trial or to hearing, then we file a motion for reconsideration. And we also have another federal lawsuit that's identical to this that we can take to the Supreme Court. And then meanwhile, people that are watching this show and other media outlets rally around together, show their support as a great United States of America to the justices so that they, with a motion for reconsideration or this other case, they can make the right decision. But we think they're going to make the right decision on this one based on how anxious they were to get it and what it's about, because it's not about the outcome of the election. It's about voter integrity. This would put to rest anyone from either side complaining about what election deniers. Is that what they call us, right? To call well, everyone. Everyone's, that's everyone's, yeah, everyone's, anybody everyone's who questions denier. it is an election yeah. denier. Well, this, this would put that to rest because then the election deniers wouldn't be able to say, you wouldn't even investigate these claims. It's like, well, they need, that's why, and one of the reasons they need to be investigated. Another reason is if there's a national security issue that is linked to some of this fraud and crime, that they could discover a huge iceberg under this little tip of ice that a hundred witnesses, credible witnesses, wanted to have explored and discovered. Let's go down and see if this, if there's an iceberg under this little piece of ice, but we need to do it. And so because they didn't do it, they, they breached their duties. They breached national security. They broke their oath of office. And it's a form of treason, in my opinion, because it's a national security issue. It's not about who won and who didn't win. And so they failed to do that. And so the complaint asks the court 
to remove every single defendant from their federal position and bar them from holding public office on any level in the United States for the rest of their lives. So the stakes are high, very, very high. This interview with Sarah is kind of all over the place at times, but I want you to hear something key to the case because it's very important for the rule of law, which may be why the Supreme Court was so eager to take this case. They are, after all, the protectors of law, especially when there is no one else. First of all, let me say, if viewers really want to get into it, they can go to 7discoveries.com, make a dollar donation, and download the full complaint. The Roland J. Brunson complaint or the Loy Arlen Brunson complaint, they're identical. Those are the complaints list have with all of the all of the affidavit, all of the exhibits, all of the proof and all of the claims and all of the reliefs. It has everything there if they want to really get into it. Sevendiscoveries.com. Okay, first of all, let's talk a little bit more about before we get into my question, let's talk a little sure. bit more about the base of this case what it is that you're actually who you're suing and what you're claiming and what the remedy would be and then we'll move on to some of the other aspects we're we're claiming that they broke their office and the defense their defense has been immunity it's like well and part of our part of our hold on a second their defense is immunity they can do whatever they want because they're in office that's right that's what the u.s attorneys yeah that's what the attorneys have been defending themselves with the both cases they have been so so focused on immunity that they've actually admitted wrongdoing in one of the cases, which we used in my case to bring a full summary judgment against two federal courts we were suing for blocking my case. That's a whole nother story. And I think you can see that at sevendiscoveries.com. Okay. Well, that's excellent. Okay. So basically you, you guys are saying they don't have immunity when it comes no. to doing their well, oath of office. Well, let me explain this. Article 6 of the Constitution, this is the Constitution of the United States. Article 6 requires, demands, mandates that all of our federal, state, and local officers be bound, bound by the oath of the Constitution. Now, if they have immunity, that that relieves them of them being bound. But I don't ever remember the Constitution, Article 6, being amended. It wasn't. That's so right. they've given themselves immunity statutes, immunity laws, title, U.S. Code Title 28, I think it's under that, where they've given themselves immunity. And that's one of the constitutional issues that we're bringing up in this suit and in this petition is that that immunity needs to be stripped with a United States Supreme Court decision and order so they can be stripped right down to state and local levels in every state in the union. Well, they can't have immunity where it, it usurps the Constitution. They can maybe have u- immunity for other things, but if it usurps yeah, the Constitution, exactly. there's no immunity. Exactly, but they, they've created this law. For example, California has perjury laws, and they say excluding, the wording actually excludes politicians and their oath of office. Jeez. I'm perjury. So, no, they can't, they, they've way, they've gone way out there with their immunity claims, and in order to sue the government or sue Congress, we're not even supposed to be in federal court. If we follow their rules, if we'd gone to attorneys and said, hey, would you help us do this? They would say, well, first of all, we need to get permission from them to sue them. It's like, what the heck is that? It's like, well, we, have right. to, we have to get a waiver from the sergeant in arms. We've got to uh, we've got to go to a special claims court. We've got to get permission. You know, it's like, no, that's we ridiculous. Yeah. Of course. Yes. Yeah. And it's against the state and federal constitutions. And so basically this case is broader than just, well, not just, but broader 
than just the election outcome. You're talking, right. you're getting at okay. the the their breach of duty on the Constitution. And so the Supreme Court, from a law standpoint, is going to look at whether this immunity clause they have is yeah. actually that's the is that the correct or not they're going to have yeah. to weigh in article 6 of the constitution and say how can they have immunity and have the oath be binding this is well, this we yeah. call this first impression this is a case unlike any other case and that's that's what they want the supreme court wants they call it first impression where it has an effect on the whole country and it's never a case like this has never been brought to them before and that's our claim this is a first impression case and that is why they wanted this case in court getting excited yet God may yet have something in mind for America other than drag queen story hours at the public library and stolen elections. Okay, so they're going to look at it as, I mean, for people to understand, they're going to look at whether they have the right to have immunity in the first place under mm -hmm. the Constitution. Right. And then they're going to, and then at that point, now at that point, if they say, no, they don't have immunity, what else would the Supreme Court in this particular case do? Because you're suing 365 people and all, you know, a, a whole, or 385 members of Congress. Now, yeah. would they also decide on whether these guys breached their oath of office or would that have to go back to court? Oh, no, they could completely, based on it being a national emergency, they can handle the reliefs, the judgments, everything, the whole thing. They don't need to put it back to a lower court. No, not at all. Well, this is really important because, you know, I just published an article on immunities. I don't know if you saw that it's on oh. IRENA, the international. Oh. Um, yeah, they're doing it's International Renewable Energy Organization that they and they have all these organizations that have immunity clauses and mm. they've used this whole network of immunity clauses uh -huh. to be able to do everything that they're doing. Yeah. And for yep. the Supreme Court to say, okay, we're going after this immunity. Section 230 is another immunity clause. That's why nobody in the media, okay. but a few of us are talking to you, because Section 230 is another immunity clause that they have and have power mm -hmm. over us. So they're going at the heart of members of Congress having immunity. And if they can do that, then suddenly we can start, if you can have good people in Congress who yeah. aren't, who can be held accountable, Suddenly, we have a different ball game going on. Uh -huh. We have different people that'll run for office too. The criminals won't do it. So you'll you'll have honest. You'll have an influx of honest, we the people, you know, type. People we have to break down. This would change. Right. This is the Achilles' heel, in our opinion. And so, what are the chances this will do anything useful? Let's hear Loy's parting advice. Don't leave the game just about the time the Hail Mary pass is going to bring us to a touchdown. Patriots fans should have learned this lesson years ago. Now all Patriots need to learn it. So we have more to be grateful for over this holiday than we thought. And in case you missed it, Stu Peters released his blockbuster documentary titled Died Suddenly Over the Holiday Too. It focuses attention on this new phenomenon of people, especially young, healthy people, who just keep keeling over dead or fail to wake up from a cold winter's nap. Now, Stu has taken some heat for using a video clip at the end of the movie that implied something that was different than what it was actually showing. But that bad judgment doesn't alter all of the very real events he tried so hard to bring to the conscience of Americans. The doctors who are filled with education and integrity have cleverly named this new phenomenon Sudden Adult Death Syndrome, or SADS, because... You know, it's kind of sad to them, I guess. 
These melancholy doctors, as well as research scientists who have hundreds of letters after their names, have absolutely no idea what could be causing all this widespread sudden death among age groups that normally die at extremely predictable and unchangeable rates. They seem unconcerned that all of this sudden excess dying began sometime in the late summer and fall of 2021, and they have no interest in exploring what might have changed in the summer and fall of 2021 that could account for an extreme increase in all-cause mortality death rates, especially among young, normally healthy individuals. Then in 2022, as if to bookend the sudden adult death syndrome, sudden child death syndrome suddenly made an appearance. The puzzled medical establishment was not so sad that they felt the need to name it SCUDS, maybe because it sounds too much like a Russian missile, but more likely because they don't want to draw attention to this problem. So while the entire medical establishment has failed to investigate all this sudden dying, as well as your elected government officials, and the CDC, and the NIH, and the Department of Health and Human Services, and CNN and NBC and CBS and ABC and Fox, and of course MSNBC, and the New York Times, and the Chicago Tribune, and the Washington Post, and the LA Times, and the World Health Organization, and the United Nations, and the United States military, one private citizen by the name of Stu Peters saw something and tried to produce a documentary to bring it to the world's attention. I don't want to hear about a short video clip at the end of the presentation and how that undermines his entire argument. You can watch the documentary for free at stupeters.com or redvoicemedia.com or BitChute, or over at Rumble, which already has millions of views. These alternative media platforms all carry the documentary because they're interested in getting important information out to the masses, something that the doctors in white coats and their mainstream corporate media allies could learn something about. One of the critics of the documentary is an author over at Forbes magazine, that bastion of high-quality, unbiased, fact-checking journalism. The day after the release of the documentary, Air quote journalist Bruce Lee published an article that was headlined, New Died Suddenly Film Pushes Unfounded Depopulation Claims About COVID-19 Vaccine. Gosh, it's almost like they had that story ready to go. While I was Googling the Forbes article on November 28th, just beneath it was a new headline that read, Crypto Founder Tiantian Coolander Unexpectedly Dead at 30. Died suddenly just seems to be all over the news these days. So, Mr. Bruce Lee, no relation to the martial arts master, I presume, Mr. Lee saw fit to ridicule the documentary based on lots of heavy scientific evidence that it was wrong. Um, I made up that last part. Actually, he cited no scientific evidence at all, as pointed out by Karen Kingston on her substack. I love the way Karen Kingston publishes quick and insightful work that is backed up by actual research and doesn't just resort to innuendo, character assassination, and mockery like the Bruce Lees of journalism do. I am so glad that God made Ms. Kingston. To support his thesis, Mr. Lee made the following claim in his article. Quote, While the film shows headlines and stories of people dying suddenly, it never really provides much concrete scientific evidence linking COVID-19 vaccines to all these sudden deaths. It shows pictures of what look like blood clots, yet never really confirms the true origins of them. To suggest that these were caused by COVID-19 vaccines, as the film did, would be kind of like showing pictures of mullets and then claiming that vaccines caused such hairstyles. End quote. Oh, ha, 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 that is a real knee slapper, Mr. Lee. 
Now, Ms. Kingston did not respond to Mr. Bruce Lee on November 23rd because she believes she should obtain actual evidence before putting pen to paper. Plus, she doesn't get paid to crank out hit pieces for the globalist media mouthpieces like Mr. Lee apparently does. No, she took her time and published a response on November 27th on her Substack account. You can find it there. It's free. You don't have to subscribe to read it, unlike many articles on Forbes, although she would be very grateful in this season of gratitude if you supported her work by subscribing to her Substack. For the sake of brevity and clarity, I'm going to walk us through her main points of evidence. But you can check out the entire article and many more evidentiary articles on her account that contain links to actual sources of information. Instead of character assassination, we will start by identifying exactly what is going on. We have been subjected to a form of bio-warfare by our government, funded and supported by the very government officials that Mr. Brunson is suing through their power of the pen. Before we can become victims of bio-warfare, Biowarfare agents must be developed, tested, and deployed. And all this research, development, and deployment has to be done by someone, somewhere, and it has to be paid for. All of that activity and spending leaves trails that can be traced back to their origin, which is why it is important for the globalists to capture the governments, media, and other institutions of the world that might otherwise be used to identify the source of the research, development, and deployment. It's just darn hard to capture all of the little ones, all the little medias, which is why most of the really valuable and accurate information comes from these small sources that are so hard to capture and control. Bioweapons development has been a staple of the United States government since well before I was in the military in the early 1980s. We were trained as soldiers to protect ourselves from chemical, radiological, and biological agents, even way back then. The United States government has been engaged in the research, development, and production of these forms of death projection for decades, with much of the research funded by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, as well as other military programs. One of the producers of biowarfare technology is a company known as Moderna. They specialize in mRNA technologies, or modified messenger RNA technologies, hence their name. mRNA is a carrier molecule for DNA manipulation, DNA being the instruction book to construct and operate physical life forms. Tinkering with DNA is serious business because changes to DNA instruct the body to do something it would not normally do or stop it from doing something that it would normally do. It's dangerous enough to change the programming code in a kitchen appliance, but when we change the programming code in something as complex and interconnected as a human biological system, the danger level is vastly greater. mRNA does not survive outside of cells, so to get it into cells where it can do its job requires it to be surrounded with a protective case. That protective case is called a lipid nanoparticle, the technology that allows the mRNA to penetrate a lipid bilayer that protects all of our cells. Without that technology, an mRNA payload could not be delivered to the cell interior. Within patents that Moderna holds and lists on their website, or used to list on their website, the lipid nanoparticle technology includes a pegylated lipid, or PEG, PEG. According to Professor James Giordano at the Modern War Institute, which is a West Point organization of the U.S. Army, PEG can act as a neuroweapon to adversely affect the mental health of individuals. You can look up Professor Giordano's lecture on the YouTube at 
youtube.com slash watch question mark V equals capital D C V N B C A lowercase C W five Q G. Now, the lipid nanoparticles that hold the peg can induce blood clotting. So, according to the Moderna website and all the patent documents it contains, their COVID-19 shot contains lipid nanoparticles as shown by Ms. Kingston on her substack. And so does Pfizer's, according to a document they submitted to the FDA in August of 2021. Since they cross the blood-brain barrier, pegylated lipid nanoparticles, which are part of the COVID-19 shots, meet the legal criteria for both military-grade bioweapons and neuroweapons. They also meet the definition of a radioactive weapon, since they contain other technologies that emit radiation. And they also meet the definition of a chemical weapon, since the lipid nanoparticle encapsulates an mRNA delivery packet that instructs the DNA to produce toxins and neurotoxins, which are the snake and marine venoms we discussed last week. Are we perceiving the presence of elements that could be utilized in a form of modern warfare yet? Now, within Moderna's lipid nanoparticle patent, it states that the mRNA payload may be encapsulated in any hydrogel. The hydrogel that encases the mRNA payload can itself form a biosynthetic material inside the body that is similar to natural tissue. That biosynthetic material is biocompatible, biodegradable, and porous. The patent further states that hydrogel may include a form that is called inverse opal hydrogel. One function of inverse opal hydrogel is to bioengineer synthetic structures inside living animals by creating genetic hybrid cells, which are cells that have been modified at the genetic level to contain biologic and non-biologic elements. This is called biosynthesis. The patents therefore state that the materials being injected into human bodies can potentially create synthetic hybrid cell structures. One of those synthetic hybrid cell structures forms long fibrous filaments that look like blood clots. So the claim by Mr. Bruce Lee that there is no evidence for the clot structures coming from the shots is at best inaccurate and more likely a carefully crafted misinformation campaign to discredit an otherwise perfectly credible and data-driven idea. We might say that there is more work to be done to make the case in a court proceeding, but is having a case ready for a court prosecution really the standard for transmitting information to people that suggests they may have been subjected to a bioweapons attack and potentially injured by it? Isn't that the job of the media? to identify these potential problems and bring light to an otherwise dark world of information? But it gets worse. There is a form of hydrogel that is also known as smart AI hydrogel. Ms. Kingston cites a December 8, 2021 article that was published in NanoSelect, which I'm sure all of you read religiously, that describes AI hydrogels engineering tissues by utilizing elements within the human body to build the new structures. In other words, they scavenge resources from inside the human body to build non-human structures within the human body. The AI hydrogel structures that mimic tissues and organs are called soft actuators. So do you see? We, the victim class, have to play catch up with them, the deceptive ruler and victimizer class, which takes time and puts us at a disadvantage because they know what they're doing and we don't. 
they have the money, expertise, and resources to roll out more weapons while we're trying to piece together the workings of this one. So to wrap it up, these pegylated lipid nanoparticles contain and deliver AI hydrogels into cells which can be used to activate biosynthesis within the human body. You should know that an AI hydrogel encapsulated pegylated lipid looks exactly like the spike protein that we have been told is COVID-19. In another technology book that Ms. Kingston cites, it explains that some smart AI hydrogels possess a kind of intelligence that enables them to direct their own movements, conduct self-repair operations on structures they build, and be responsive to the internal environment of the animal in which they exist. They are also able to respond to external stimuli from light, sound, temperature, and electromagnetic signals and optics. And that, my friends, is what we have been discussing these past few episodes. This is why the government is frantically constructing 5G and 6G transmitters everywhere. Or, as former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler once said about constructing the 5G system, it is damn important. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the National Press Club Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler. It's an honor uh, to be here um, at the National Press Club. The first generation wireless, 1G, was voice. The second generation, 2G, allowed both talk and text. The third generation, 3G, the internet, in a limited way. And today's technology, 4G, completed that digital migration. But if anyone tells you that they know the details of what 5G is going to become, run the other way. Yes, 5G will connect the internet of everything. If something can be connected, it will be connected in the 5G world. Hundreds of billions of microchips connected in products from pill bottles to plant waterers requiring massive deployment of small cells. We won't wait for the standards. Now to make this work, five, the 5G build out is going to be very infrastructure intensive. We must reject the notion that the 5G future will be the sole provenance of urban areas. The 5G revolution will touch all corners and that's damn important. The interconnected world of the future will be the result of decisions we must make today. That does not sound like a technology that the government is installing at the cost of trillions and trillions of dollars to let you download Netflix faster. It seems much more plausible that they are installing this 5G system to receive data and transmit instructions in the frequency range that the hydrogels respond to, the AI hydrogels. These AI hydrogels and actuators are biohybrid species that can self-replicate. They are artificial, semi-autonomous organisms that can grow and reproduce inside our bodies and hijack cells in the process. If you want more proof that these people are enemies, Look at the information that you and I are allowed to see that describes the composition of the shots. On Pfizer's approval application for their Warp Speed COVID product, they redacted all of the drug preparation information, all of the information on lipid nanoparticles, 
and all of the information concerning how they formulate the bulk drug product. These are fields on the application that are normally visible to the public once a drug enters widespread use. The insert of side effects in all of these shots, containers, were also intentionally left blank. Pfizer, in collaboration with the FDA, tried to keep their drug trial information secret for 70 years. It took a court order to force them to release the documents, which are a treasure trove of information proving that Pfizer and the FDA both lied about a great many things, not least of which was the extraordinary number and severity of serious to catastrophic side effects that they knew would occur regularly and often up to and including death. They didn't properly test anything, and they conducted no meaningful safety tests of any kind, including on adults, adolescents, children, pregnant women, and even babies. But there's more. Who, you might ask, is responsible for prosecuting this war? Who besides pharma executives and the bought and paid for FDA officials do we have to blame for this monstrosity that's been unleashed on humanity? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me introduce you to Sasha Latipova, a human import from our newest favorite country, Ukraine, except that she moved here long before the current military fiasco was even a twinkling in Uncle Joe's perverted eye. Ms. Latipova is what we call a bona fide authentic government corporatocracy whistleblower, the kind of person who needs to keep her head on a swivel and one eye trained on her back. She, like the young lady who is interviewing her, is extremely smart and likes to use real data, unlike certain journalists from Forbes magazine. She posts her information on trialsitenews.com, which you can access at trialsitenews.com p slash Latipova spelled L-A-T-Y-P-O-V-A. I'm going to let Maria Z of Z Media introduce her. Sasha Ladipova is an ex-pharma employee and biotech expert with 25 years of industry experience in clinical trials, clinical technologies and regulatory approvals. She's owned and managed several contract research organisations and worked with over 60 pharmaceutical companies throughout her career, also interacting with the FDA as part of that and as part of a scientific industry consortium on improving cardiac safety assessments in clinical trials. What Sasha has found through her extensive research of DOD contracts authorised under the Obama, Trump and Biden administrations is truly shocking and proves how all of these so-called regulators, including the FDA, TGA and those all around the world, are simply paid actors carrying out the depopulation agenda, which has been implemented largely by the DOD. This is truly bombshell information and could be a huge game changer. Here's Sasha now. So Sasha is no lightweight podcaster voicing her opinion to her audience. She's worked for years in the biotech industry running and evaluating clinical trials and quality assurance quality control operations for pharmaceutical companies. She knows the normal expectations of these trials, she knows the procedures that are supposed to be used, and she knows the regulations that govern these trials inside and out. It is an interesting fact to note that God is a God of laws, and one of the interesting things about that is that he mandates his opponent, Satan, and his forces to operate under laws. Demons, for example, cannot attack and possess a person just because they feel like it. They have to have the legal authority to do that, and they get that authority from the person they wish to attack. That is one of several reasons why God forbids his people from having anything to do with the occult. In Leviticus 19.31, for example, the Lord said, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. Or, 
as the same passages written in the ESV translation, do not turn to mediums and necromancers, do not seek them out. Necromancy is the currently popular occult practice of contacting the dead, supposedly. Familiar spirits, or familiars, are spirits that also might be known as spirit guides. These entities are demons masquerading as Aunt Alice or your favorite spiritual mentor for the purpose of deceiving you and anyone else who will listen to them. They are all evil, and anyone who contacts them gives them permission to begin the act of oppression, which can progress to possession if it is allowed to go on long enough. Occult practices were so detestable to God and threatening to the spiritual health of his people that in Leviticus 20.27, God prescribed the solution to this problem in the context of the citizens of national Israel. A man or a woman who is a medium or who has a familiar spirit shall surely be put to death. So messing around with demons is serious business to God because in doing so, we give demons the legal basis to infiltrate and influence or even control our bodies and minds, which is how they advance Satan's agenda through their human hosts. They are a kind of spiritual parasite, much like hydrogel, or AI hydrogel, is a hybrid biomachine parasite in our own bodies. So the world is literally subject to the rules of God's law. It is founded physically on the laws of nature that were created and are enforced by God, and it is founded spiritually on the laws of authority which were also created and are enforced by God. It is very interesting that the people who have elected to wage war against humanity feel compelled to create the legal basis in human law for doing so. And that is the brilliant insight that Sasha brings to the table. By doing that, they have left a legal trail that may shield them from human prosecution, but it also points directly at the human authorities who unleashed this war on humanity. Do you want to find out who is responsible for prosecuting this war? Let's hear what Sasha has uncovered. Let's start with uh, your work with Team Enigma identifying the the batches. Um, I mean, I, I've already previously interviewed Dr. Mike Eden on this subject, and most people are aware of this, but if you can just give us a brief overview of your work with Team Enigma and what work has been done into the batches before we move on. Right, so that's how I first got into the analysis of this. Um, I, uh, you know, I became concerned very early on with what was going on, especially with suppression of um early treatments and that was just atrocious in my opinion and that alarmed me and i started looking into the situation more closely so i first um started looking into VAERS database because it's a cdc vaccine adverse event reporting system uh, which is publicly available and that system contains uh, lot numbers or batch numbers for vaccines um, so uh, I, I started looking into that and how the adverse event reports and deaths um, reports were very highly variable by each batch of the of these mRNA vaccines. Um, and I, I did get together with a number of people, including Mike Eden, um, and you know we called ourselves Team Enigma, um, and we you know we collaborated and we did analysis and discussed it for several months. Um, and eventually, so the, the analysis revealed that these products do not comply at all with good manufacturing practices because the variability was um, thousands of times higher, lot to lot of batch to batch, than is expected from uh, a well-manufactured product that's complying with good manufacturing practices. So you might recall that there were people who early on identified large disparities in adverse events between shots of different lot numbers. 
And when they did, there were lots of other people who very quickly discounted that information as unimportant. Sasha is explaining there were not just a few minor variations in between lot numbers, but variations on the scale of orders of magnitude, which, if nothing else, is a, supposed to be a red flag for the manufacturing process, and it warrants action. Let's hear why. And good manufacturing practices is a set of laws. It's a very extensive set of laws in the U.S., and there is similar legislation in the in Western world where, you know, it, it's, it's all designed to control um, how the product is made, the quality of the product, and consistency, specifically purity and potency. Um, and uh, um, it, it throughout the whole manufacturing chain, from raw materials to intermediate pieces, supplies, and uh, final assembly and shipping, and also in distribution. So that's supposed to be traced through the distribution so that if anything happens uh, with administration of this product, then we can trace back throughout the whole system and all the way to the raw material suppliers and figure out which piece is wrong, what, what went wrong, where there's a problem and what needs to be fixed. And obviously it's a hugely complex system and a very complex set of laws uh, that apply to it. And if you follow that more or less, you know, there's always room for improvement. But if you follow that more or less, like we found with uh, traditional flu vaccines, they seem to be manufactured to those standards and they didn't vary much at all. Uh, lots over time, different manufacturers, different sizes of lots, the, the performance was very consistent. They did not vary much at all. There was about like five to 10 adverse event reports per lot over a very long history. So we have a normal baseline for comparison. It is, there is very little variability between lots and a handful of adverse events only. It is very consistent over thousands of manufactured products, this normal baseline. And there are very consistent practices and laws governing these things. And again, uh, I, I just want to pause you here. These systems exist for the purpose of organizations such as the FDA, organizations such as the TGA to monitor the safety of these products. And traditionally, and we all know this, traditionally, should something present with safety signals, these types of systems would exist for the purpose of, okay, too many safety signals, we need to reevaluate. And this is what was happening with these systems. And yet it was ignored, skewed, and the public were lied to. We know this. Exactly. And it was consistently ignored by every single regulatory. Uh, by the way, all these systems exist. First of all, the manufacturers themselves have these systems and they most of the time they detected themselves and, and vast majority of product recalls are voluntary by the manufacturer. And you probably know and you probably got, you know, messages from your car dealer or car manufacturer saying that this this part was recalled in your vehicle. Well, that's because they have those systems themselves and they monitor them and they figure out something's wrong and they recall a part or a product. Uh, same happens for the pharmaceutical products. Well, and, well the same uh, happens, it, Sasha, for a head of lettuce. If there's one defective head yeah. of lettuce in the country, every head of lettuce will be pulled off the shelves until they figure out what it, what went wrong. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly right. So And, the, and these systems exist, uh, you know, in the U.S., both at federal, state and local county level. Health authorities do that. So for, for these products, uh, we actually, uh, you know, I found one news report in uh, Orange County, California, 
um, the health authority accidentally did their job. And on January 18th, 2021, which is just two weeks after the full rollout of these shots in the United States, they detected a problem with a lot of Moderna. Uh, and they said there were too many, well, they call it allergic reactions. Uh, but then, and there was, it was in, reported in numerous news outlets, including on CNN, uh, and then nothing happened. And I, and that lot was continued to be distributed all over the United States uh, until end of March, until it, it ran out. And uh, I counted in their system uh, over 3,000 adverse event reports for, the, for it and 60 deaths. So on January 18th, they detect an issue. They do nothing and they kill 60 people, at least, when no VAERS is underreported. VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, has been estimated to account for between less than 1% to a high of 10% of all adverse events. So take those 60 deaths and multiply by between 10 and 100, and that is the number of people who were killed directly and quickly by the potion from just that one lot. And that doesn't count all the thousands of other adverse events some of which affected people for life. But she is wrong when she says they did nothing. They did something. They buried the story. So after that occurrence, everything else should be considered intentional. And by the way, throughout the world. Because okay. this product is distributed throughout the world and wherever it's sold in every country, this should be noted by the regulators. And nobody did anything. I want to pause here for a minute to let that sink in. From the mouth of an expert who ran pharmaceutical safety and efficacy tests, she says that failure to stop the deployment of this potion at this point was not just bad judgment. It wasn't just a whoopsie mistake. Based on good manufacturing practice, written standards, and regulatory rules, it was a deliberate action opposed to normal practices that they knew would lead to countless deaths, debilitations, and illnesses. In other words, it was a calculated criminal act. So, all right, now we now we get to the, the crux of the issue here because you just said something to me before we started speaking online that, that is shocking. But also, uh, I'm not surprised. But I want you to explain to, to, to me and, and to the audience exactly how this fraud came about in terms of the regulators playing the role of the regulator but not actually being regulators. They know and they're just part of the theatre. Yes, um, so this is a very critical uh, piece, and I advise everyone to, you know, I got this information from my uh, through my uh, friend and colleague, Catherine Watt. She's also a private citizen and a very uh, deep and experienced researcher in legal matters. So she writes Substack, it's called Bailiwick News. Uh, I advise everyone to go read it. Um, and so this is, you know, she calls it American domestic bioterrorism program, but it's actually American international bioterrorism program because it includes many other countries where American products, these products are being distributed. Um, so she revealed a very, um, you know, this whole scheme, which is actually quite simple. Um, the United States government and Department of Defense um, are running this program. United States government over many years, and this, this goes back to you know, a decade, uh, they put in place three key pieces where they uh, removed the, the regulations that we just discussed. They removed the good manufacturing practice requirements and all safety monitoring requirements for 
what they call countermeasures. So they, they call these things countermeasures. These, by the way, these vaccines or not vaccines, injections, they're classified as countermeasures. And countermeasures is a is an a, it's a euphemism for weapons. Uh, so uh, Department of Defense has the right to order uh, these countermeasures, meaning weapons, from private manufacturers, meaning Pfizer, Moderna, and a whole bunch of their own suppliers. There's like hundreds of companies that make this. Um, and these are emergency use authorized, so no regulations apply to them. And this happens under public health emergency. So three things you have to, you have a DOD, uh, other transactional authority where, where, whereby they contract with private manufacturers, they make countermeasures, uh, which are emergency use authorized. And this happens under public health emergency. So when those conditions are met, no regulations apply whatsoever. The only standard for releasing them or deploying them is um, United States Health and Human Services head, um, which is secretary, which is uh, at the time when that started was Alex Azar under Trump administration. And now currently it's Javier Becerra. It's up to that person's sole discretion to deploy these weapons if they feel that they may be effective. That's it. There's no other standard that applies. So she, Sasha, is going to flesh this out more, but the essential idea is that the DOD can deploy a bioweapon, which is cynically labeled a countermeasure, if one person in government says so, an unelected person at that. And that order by that one person ends all regulatory authority over the bioweapon. By the way, a countermeasure in military parlance is anything that is deployed to defeat an opponent's weapon or warhead. In other words, it's sent to attack the weapon or the warhead. If the weapon that is being attacked is a human being, then the countermeasure will attack human beings with the intent to neutralize them. Isn't that a cute game of words with the law? So the, this person that had, are we, are we talking now about, say, Operation Warp Speed, for example? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So this is Operation Warp Speed, which is a DOD operation, Department of Defense operation um, that they set up. Department of Defense is explicitly chief operating officer of this whole organization, which is called Operation Warp Speed. Um, there are a bunch of there's a layer of U.S. government that designs, develops, manufactures these products and farmers are just suppliers. They execute on the orders. Okay, but everything is designed, developed, manufactured by and over, you know, the oversight is DOD and then they release these. But the legal structure is that uh, once they made these things, then HHS secretary, Alex Azar, if he decides that they may be effective, they can be released on the market. So notice that this is all done by DOD under command of the DOD with their suppliers and network and so forth. DOD is not regulated by FDA, it's not regulated by good manufacturing practices or good distribution practices, does not have to run clinical trials, does not have to demonstrate safety and efficacy. And by the way, for these products, no clinical trials are needed because HHS secretary declares them may be effective. That's it. They don't have to be safe. I have and a question so for you. Just, I just want to pause there about Alex Azar. So this this person that has the authority to 
consider that something may be effective. Mm-hmm. Do they do they have to present the president at the time with evidence of that, or they just they're just given the, the power to make that call? The law doesn't say so. It says that it's up to uh, HHS secretary and he or she. That specifically says in the law, he or she may deem the, these, um, uh, you know, they can examine all the scientific evidence that is available, if it is available, and then he or she decides if it may be effective. So that's after this own, the sole discretion of this person is the way that the law is written. And so uh, under Trump administration, Alex Azar was that person who pulled that trigger and he said that they may be effective. And so uh, but but the point is that FDA does not play any role here, as you, as you can see. So what FDA has been doing all this time is acting and playing a theater and pretending to be a regulator. So they're impersonating a regulator when they have no role to regulate these products. And that's the fraud that has been committed on all of us. So they're impersonating a regulator. They, we also know we also have leaked emails where we see that the FDA pressured the European Medicines Agency to do the, to approve these things also on specific schedule, and they created this whole panic and and rush and saying, "Oh my God, you know, if we just if we don't approve by Christmas of 2020, you know, the world will come to an end." And so they've they've done the same thing. They they pushed the the European regulators, who are also quite aware. I I don't think they're amateurs, and they probably investigated the legal structure of this too. And then oh, you know, they probably did the same in Australia. They did the same everywhere else where they pushed this garbage. Um, and um, you know that that that's that's the fraud. So all the regular so so that's why everybody's having this frustration. You know, going and and speaking about safety and efficacy, and there is no safety, there is no efficacy. We always see these adverse events, and every study after study shows all these, you know, damage. And we also have, you know, bodies piling up. There is excess mortality everywhere, drops in infertility everywhere. You know, huge numbers. Uh, and we're going to the regulators, and and we are saying, look, you know, you have this data. How can you, you know, can we investigate it? Can and and the response comes back. We've done rigorous assessment. They're safe and effective. Go away, peasant. Uh, that's that's it because they're they're acting. They're not regulating. They're pretending. They're stalling everyone so that we keep going there and barking up the wrong tree. The accusation is that our FDA officials are committing fraud by pretending to be regulators who are regulating a product when they are in fact running interference for a military operation. That makes perfect sense. And it makes perfect sense as to why court cases go nowhere. It makes perfect sense as to why, um, you know, they're able to make those statements because of the fact Mm -hmm. that they're just playing a role here. So we're saying now, we're Mm -hmm. saying that the main perpetrator here is the DOD. Who else... and, and, and I mean, you're you're confident of that because you've actually looked into the contracts, uh, historical contracts where this was planned. Yes. So there's a, a a lot of contracts there available through well the ones that I saw um, available through the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, you know, in the U.S., uh, the the publicly traded companies have to disclose material. Uh, contracts and agreements with their shareholders. So these contracts become available because they're, you know, highly material. The They got 
billions of dollars, millions of dollars in contracts to develop. And it's not just the vaccines, it's everything. In the U in the US, I found contracts for you know, about, about 400 contracts um, for everything, vaccines, uh, monoclonal antibodies, um, the masks, even uh, swabs, uh, tests, kits, staffing, uh, logistics, uh, everything related to COVID. And all of them are with um, Department of Defense and BARDA, which is a kind of a biologics um, biologics arm of the Department of Defense, and that they give different grants and contracts for development of these kinds of things. Um, so so they so these these contracts are all with essentially with department of defense or you know, a combination of department of defense barda and health and human services but they're all the same under the public health emergency they actually merge into the same organization they they all uh, always report to the executive branch of the government so they're part of the same thing but now they're even more merged into into one and how and, far um, back do these contracts go sasha so they go back, like the ones that I read go back to 2012 at least, but they're probably, you know, much, much longer than that. Um, the, the ones, um, the, the earliest one I read 2012 is for this company called Emergent Biosolutions. And Emergent Biosolutions is a known, you know, longstanding uh, Department of Defense contractor. They were actually originally owned by the United States government. They were privatized at some point, um, they were always making, I, I don't know, biologics vaccines for the government. They, they got privatized. They're now you know, privately owned, but they continue contracting. And they're exclusive manufacturer of uh, anthrax vaccine, which has always been very problematic, as you know. Indeed. And um, they are notoriously known for no, never complying with good manufacturing practices. They they keep being you know found in violation of these things by the FDA audits, and nothing is ever done about it. Um, and most recently, they were um, they actually were the the manufacturer for AstraZeneca and Janssen vaccine in the U.S. Um, and then they were found, and you know there was most recent um, FDA audit for them in 2021, and I have a a form that's called form 483 for them issued by the FDA, which finds huge number of like, you know, insane violations uh, of s sanitary norms, you know, like the, the, the traceability, the, the people never like people are supposed to these things are supposed to be produced in aseptic conditions because you can't sterilize them. Uh, and you're supposed to have like clean room environment and very strict protocols for when people go in and go out and they have to change the gowns and everything and sterilize everything none of this ha they just go in and out they smoke in there the, the, i i mean the, the, they're really bad like the the security cameras show that they just waltz back and forth anybody can go in security is not maintained um and nothing happens so, shocker, the DOD contractor does not have to obey the same rules as everyone else. This came out in the mainstream news about a plant in New Jersey and the horrific manufacturing conditions at that plant. It was identified in the media and nothing happened. Because why would they, the people who are hiring them to do these things, why would they care when the real purpose of the potion was not to save lives but to end them, to depopulate, and to shorten other people's lives? 
and to do unmentionable things to and inside everyone's human body. So it's uh, U.S. Code 360-BBB-K. And so that specific, um, and it's 21 U.S. Code. So 21 U.S. Code, it says use of emergency use authorized covered medical countermeasures uh, once designated as such by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Oh, it says March 10, 20, uh, so when he authorized it, it was March 10, 2020, but it was retroactive to February 4th, 2020, shall not be considered to constitute a clinical investigation. So this says that uh, under this EUA law that was adopted in 1997 and amended in 2003, 2004, 2005, 13, and 17. So of course there's huge pre-planning going on here. When they when this health and, uh, health and human services declares public health emergency, then the secretary can use EUA covered medical countermeasures and when they use them, it's not, it doesn't constitute clinical investigation, meaning that the FDA has no role regulating it at all. And nobody, nobody, uh, when, when, so when they performed these clinical trials, these clinical trials for these products, right? It was all theater because these products cannot have a clinical investigation when they're used by law. And they pretended to have a clinical investigation. <laughs> you know? So everyone well, so, they so involved. It, it wasn't even a matter of a badly run cl clinical trial. It was a pretend clinical trial. It was a saying. pretend clinical trial. Yes. Yeah. So, so the relevance of this and the, the reason why I'm bringing this up today is, um, well, it's 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 ex extremely important to bring up. But also, we have, if you're aware, um, there's a, a a big case going on, uh, Brooke Jackson's. Uh, False Claims Act case. So Brooke Jackson was a um, was hired by Dentavia, which is subcontractor to Icon, which is which was performing clinical trial for Pfizer in the U.S. and internationally. And um, she was hired in Texas to be a, a manager at the clinical trial site, and she observed multiple instances of uh, fraud and violations of good clinical practices and. Uh, she was very concerned, and this was within two weeks, she noticed a lot of bad things, and she reported it first to Ventavia, as she was supposed to, and then when Ventavia didn't do anything about it, she reported it to the FDA, and that's that's the protocol, that's what you're supposed to do. And, uh, you know, the FDA, and she was, after she reported to the FDA, she was fired within hours, meaning FDA then told her employer to fire her. And since then, and she, she brought up a lawsuit against Pfizer. And in the U.S., there's a, this legislation that goes back to President Lincoln, actually, uh, to, to, to uh, the war times uh, when, they, when they were, you know, the government was being sold uh, defective products and during the war. And so this, this legislation is specifically designed to protect the government from false claims, from uh, suppliers providing defective products and falsely claiming attributes, right? So, so clinical trial is part of it. If you're doing some, you know, some things and you're de determining safety and efficacy of this, if you're lying about it, that's false claim. So that was, you know, the 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 lawsuit that that was brought up, and um, it's been going on since 
2021. Uh, and yesterday was a time like so the 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 first the first Pfizer filed motion to dismiss and saying that citing one of the contracts that is available now publicly and saying that under this contract with Department of Defense, actually, so so they, their, their premise to dismiss was we're not lying, we're not making false claims, uh, because under this contract uh, with Department of Defense, our scope of work is demonstration of large-scale manufacturing. It's so, so essentially the Department of Defense have told the pharmaceuticals how to get away with this as well. Yes. So they hired them for for so what is demonstration? Demonstration is theater. It's acting. It's performance. It's 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 not real. Uh, and so it's not it's not real thing, real product. When you go as a salesperson, you do a demo. It's just a demo. It's not it's not the actual thing. Right. So uh, that's what they said. You know, we were hired to do a large scale demo uh, of large scale manufacturing. That's it. That's our scope. And, you know, that time went by, then now U.S. government, uh, you know, for some reason, they, 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 they filed a statement of interest saying that, you know, no, 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 it should be, the case should be dismissed. And so yesterday was the time that the, the, the legal team was supposed to file a response to that. And so, you know, I talked to, to, to Catherine Watt and she tried to convince the, the team to amend their statement saying that, you know, U.S. government is actually lying to Brooke Jackson and all of us with Brooke Jackson because they are they are acting as if this is a real clinical investigation, but it's not. And so that that was the whole thing. I, I don't think their lawyers went with that strategy, but that's that's fine. That you know, uh, it, at this point, we just want the case to proceed, and they 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 file something different from this. Doesn't make it untrue. It's just that that's the strategy they decided to pursue. And uh, we just hope that the case continues and doesn't get dismissed and we can proceed with it. But that's that's what we're saying to everyone. Brooke Jackson was under impression she was participating in the clinical trial and she was supposed to monitor it and she was supposed to report to the FDA when the violations happened. In reality, she was participating in the theatrical performance. And so that's that's the, that's the distinction. And when the regulators like TGA get back to you and say we reviewed and everything is is perfect and it's safe and effective they're lying to you they're impersonating a regulator they well, have the, no role this is this i'm so glad that you brought that up because this was going to be my next question we've just had a situation where our our regulators regulators are saying oh we didn't know about the risks of myocarditis until five months into the trial this is these are their words right so i have a couple of problems here number one five months into the trial is a year ago now almost so mm -hmm. if you knew then or it is over a year ago if you knew that then you should have stopped it immediately when you found out about the risks of myocarditis first and foremost that's number mm -hmm. one but number two how any what you're telling me is that any statements that they're making are just essentially part of this theater because they're not actually the regulators but how does this work say for example here in australia when we have these bodies you know lawyers are taking them to court they're getting away with anything that they want they're not answering to senators the senators are inquiring in parliament asking them to answer things directly they're just shirking you know uh, shuffling the answers off and saying i'll get back to you later coming back with ambiguous answers so 
mm-hmm. what you're what, from what you're telling me, there is actually no way of holding these people accountable because they're not actually, unless we target it from a perspective of you're actually uh, an installed liar. That's really yes. what this is, right? Yes. The only way to go after them, I think, if there is a legal way to do it, is to say you're impersonating an, an officer, you're impersonating uh, a regulator when you have no role to play as a regulator. Thank the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned above the sky, that he has provided a few good men and women, people who are trying to help America and Americans by putting their lives on the line to bring these people to justice. We'd better pray that they succeed because the stakes are rising, and when the stakes rise on these color revolutions, the governments tend to come out with the guns next, then the prisons, and then the big holes in the ground. Only instead of chickens and turkeys being tossed in, it will be human bodies. That's the progression everywhere one of these things happens in the world. And based on the end-time revelations of what the world is going to be like during that time period, that's what's approaching us. There's more that Sasha had to say if you want to hear it. Just go to Z Media with three E's and look for that podcast. There is a reason that the Lord Jesus Christ had John write Revelation. And there is a reason that the first three chapters start with the instructions to the churches which are instructions to believers in the lead-up to the Great Tribulation. It is a technological tribulation put in place by technocrats and Satan, and we are fast approaching that time. We last left off with the church at Pergamos during the coming age of famine, pestilence, and food scarcity. Members of Christ's church will be tempted to eat defiled food, or food that carries with it the requirement of defilement in some other way, maybe by taking pharma potions. After that stage of testing, the church will enter the stage of the church at Thyatira. This is a point of widespread death that we will cover next week, or next time, next episode. We're not there yet, so there's still time to prepare our hearts, minds, bodies, and churches for the coming trials that Jesus Christ himself said will surely come. At least we can take some comfort in having Karen, Loy, Maria, and Sasha working for us here in America, pushing back against the agenda of Satan. Don't get frustrated with people on our side who make a mistake while pushing back against the evil of the day, maybe by putting a video clip in a movie that shouldn't be in that movie, or making some claims that might turn out to not be wholly accurate in the end. We're fighting against enormous odds, and we don't have the resources or advantages that satanic forces have. We have ourselves, a few good people who are using the tools we have at our disposal, plus courage and determination. We also have God, of course. We have a history of patriotic resistance in this country. Now let's see if God uses us for his good, or if he brings judgment and destruction to America for all the sins this country has committed over the past century, even up to today. But maybe God will have mercy on us and do something spectacular with all this mess. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face, a high five star, or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, and Podchaser. We're even working on a website. Whew, we're catching up with the times, aren't we? If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Thank our Lord Almighty for leading our team with the flawed people we have And we thank you for stretching your hand of protection over these people who are trying to liberate us from this corrupt, diabolical evil. Help us get to the next episode, and in the meantime, strengthen our hearts and minds in Jesus, the only true globalist king of the world.